Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We're now in our series called Journey of the Redeemed. It's a study in the book of Luke, and as we explore the life of Jesus, we also examine our own journeys shaped by him. My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here. Perhaps you know that I'm married to the lead pastor, Kelly. Uh, we actually flip-flopped roles. When, when we started Echo, I was the lead pastor. But uh, I know she's, uh, and my daughter are watching. We've got the COVID in the house. It's been a, it's like, I thought we were done with this. And we're never done, everybody. It's the Groundhog Day of our lives. So let's just drink it up, right? Now, uh, the one thing about my lovely wife, she doesn't let me preach as much anymore. I don't, I, I don't think it's because of fear. I think it's just because she's got the flow and that's great. But this is the longest I've ever gone not preaching at Echo to the point that I forgot all of my rhythms. So getting back in the saddle might be tough for me. I'm going to ask a little patience. I'm not going to break the church while Kelly's gone, but I think I can make this happen. We good? Everyone feeling it? Feeling it? Okay. Mid-1930s, the U.S. is gripped in the midst of a Great Depression, and one of the things that um, actually coincided with that time, if you think about it, in times of duress, people try to um, self-therapeute, if you will, and alcoholism was at its highest level. So in 1935, a guy named Bill Wilson, who lived in the northern part of the state in Akron, Ohio, realized the problem, realized that his life had been rocked to the core by alcoholism, and he created a small group which became known as Alcoholics Anonymous. And the and if you've never been to an AA meeting, and it's a, it's a very healthy place, but it's just a place for people to come together who have problems, and there are daily meetings all over the country where people can come and be encouraged to try to make it yet another day fighting alcoholism. And that's one of the reasons that Bill said, I need a group, started this group, which later expanded to become today, here just almost a century later, what is something that has been transformational in the lives of many. But here's what's interesting is that Bill then spent the last decades of his life as a member of AA. And if you've been to an AA meeting, you know it works out this way, or if you've seen it on TV, I guess, is that when somebody shares, they get up and they state their name. Hi, my name is Steve and I am an alcoholic. And even though Alcoholics Anonymous is supposed to retain the anonymity, there was always a portion, there continues to be a portion in the gathering where the person who attends states their name. They let everybody know in the midst of an anonymous gathering who they are. Now this is interesting that when Bill passed away, Nobody had known, actually, that he was the founder of AA, and he allowed special permission because, again, it was anonymous. He actually signed part of his will to say, hey, when I die, you can publicize that I'm the guy who started that. And it was until then that nobody actually knew who it was. And interestingly enough, even today, when you're trying to talk to somebody who might be in an AA group, sometimes they call themselves friends of Bill because of Bill Wilson, because that is the identifying aspect of this. And the quote that um, Bill said, and you know what, my iPad, okay, I was going to say, if this thing dies, we're going to have fun. Getting back in the saddle, I told you guys. I've got a quote Is a quote up on the screen? You're awesome. Thanks for taking care of me, Mikey. Um, Bill said this, anonymity 
isn't just something to save us from alcoholic shame and stigma. Its deeper purpose is to keep those fool egos of ours from running hog wild after money and fame. So part of the reason that Bill said, hey, what anonymity can help us is as we try to increase our place in life, that it keeps us in check. Because sometimes living in anonymity is the greatest, the greatest bracketing of our egos from taking over. Okay, so we're in our series continuing the study of Luke, Journey of the Redeemed. And we're focusing in on so much of the life and the teachings of Jesus. And this week we're looking at teachings. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, You can look it up on your uh, app, on your little phone there. There are blue Bibles in the pew, and it is page 741. And I laughed about this when Kelly's like, hey, I need you to preach this text. And I look at the text, and I'm like, oh, this is probably the worst text ever that you have to preach in the book of Luke. Because Jesus actually speaks into two things that are highly controversial. And she's like, thank you, dear. So that's my call today, is to work towards an offense here. But what I want us to really see is that what Jesus is doing in saying some words that you and I might consider to be tough, he's actually opening up a possibility of what it means for you and I to live as the redeemed people of God. Okay, so we are in Luke chapter 16. And in this section right here, and I'm going to start in verse 13, Jesus is confrontational. And I can't recall if Kelly actually preached through the beginning of Luke chapter 16, but right at the end of this story about uh, the parable of the shrewd manager, at the end, I think it leads into the important issues that we're going to talk about first, right? So if you're looking in Luke chapter 16, in verse 13... Jesus makes what is known as a well-known statement. So you might not know a lot of the words of Jesus, but perhaps you're familiar with this. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus calls out the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers, because they love their stuff. And it's important to see this, that Jesus speaks out on the issue of personal finance. And he does it to this group because their understanding of personal finance is so askew that it is making them wayward. And we're going to come back to that. But not only does Jesus open the can and say, your money is getting the way of your worship of God. He goes on here in verse 8. Wait, I skipped at verse 14. Isn't it, Rob? Yes. They're the lovers of money. See, I'm getting back into it. It'll be good. But let's, rock, let's go down to verse 18 because then we'll really mess with it. And I'm going to mess this up even if the slide is right. That Jesus then says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's very interesting when you get into the church. We're very pro-Jesus, but then there's a stigma surrounding things in our lives that might feel as if they prevent us from Jesus. And sometimes having a past seems like one of those things, right? Some of us believe that the only way to be good Christians is to have lived a perfect, pristine life. And if you've screwed up, then God is going to smite button on you to make you pay for the sins of the past. So when you and I see the words of Jesus, because Jesus gets a good rap, right? Jesus is the person who you're like, hey, I don't know about all those other Christians, but I love me some J.C., 
If Jesus is saying something confrontational, like, hey, if you're divorced, you're, you're in this perpetual state of adultery, that's hard teachings. But so what I want to do is deal with that, and we're going to deal with an even, if it's possible, maybe an even more controversial subject after this, but to grapple with what Jesus is trying to do here and what we're going to frame all of this in is the relationship of Jesus with the religious leaders. Because if you know anything about Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders was quite contentious. Actually, whenever Jesus confronted people, it was typically the religious leaders. Now, why was this? It's because they were the ones who were supposed to be the shepherds. They were supposed to be the ones in the know who took great, great pride in being able to use their sway of religiosity to keep the people in line. And not only then did it provide them some subservient people below them, but their their, their power, their sway, their influence kept buffer with the Romans who were actually over them because they were seen as the most important Jewish people in the society. So it was critically important that the religious leaders retain their power because that was their prominence and standing and enter Jesus, who repeatedly was referred to as the Jewish Messiah, which already then a Messiah who would be a kingly figure would would dethrone them from their place of prominence. And Jesus comes in, not only seeing the religious leaders, but confronts them. Why does he confront them? Because at every turn, while they should be helping the people of God grow closer to him, they are making it more difficult. So I want to even point out about this verse that Jesus talks about divorce. Notice that he says, when a man divorces his wife. And again, we're going to break this down overall. So understand is that there are reasons today for people not to be married that are completely legitimate. But what the Pharisees were doing in the same way is that they used the power and the financial influence to try to keep people down. They also used the law to get what they want in aspects of relationship. And because they were the key holders to the law, they could find any reason at all to divorce the women with whom they were married. And in that first century society, and the Jewish society, a divorced woman was not fit to remarry. And because of that, basically it was a cutting off from the people of God. And why? Just because the Pharisees wanted to wield their power in such a way to make the spiritual sway all about them. Now, I'm using that as a basis. And by the way, Kelly's like, I was like, I really want to focus on this. And she's like, can you hit the divorce first, too? I'm like, okay, so if I didn't treat that well, I'm going to keep trying to reel with this as we go into this story that Jesus tells to the teachers of the law that frames them in this way. So let's move on to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, because Jesus tells a story that is going to weird us out a little bit. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's some pretty grotesque description but let's understand that Jesus is setting up the story in this way to be able to make an important distinction. So we have two characters right here, right? We have first a rich man 
And the implication of this is it wasn't just that this person was wealthy, but in the first century, and the people to whom Jesus was speaking to, the Pharisees, these teachers of the law, would have been rich and wealthy. One of the reasons is, is that their wealth would afford them the time where they didn't have to do normal jobs, but could study the law all day long. So basically, it was the promulgation of their wealth that wealth gave them power, gave them knowledge and influence, and there was no way for the people to climb that social strata. In Jesus' day, 94% of the general population lived in abject poverty, which means they didn't know where food was coming from from the next day. So when Jesus tells this story of the rich men, the poor people listening know that trope. They know who the rich man is just there because that is an unattainable type. They know, despite whatever they will do, they will never be able to to do this. And you can see that it's viewed through the adornments of their clothes, their eating habits. Because to follow the Jewish dietary laws, the laws of Kashrut, were difficult, especially if you lived in poverty. If it was, I'm going to say ceremonially clean by eating the right food, but I don't have a lot of resources, money, and earning power to be able to buy the food, it becomes difficult. But the Pharisees, that was no problem for them. Their wealth allowed them to be able to follow the laws that they oversaw. Even their grooming habits, right? So you see this victorious person, this Pharisee, this teacher. And then it's juxtaposed on the other side. And here we see a poor man named Lazarus. And it's important to note that, you know, some of us knowing the Bible, you're like, hey, I knew a Lazarus guy. He he dead. Jesus rose him from the dead. Different Lazarus. Popular name in Palestine at the time. So not the same guy. Actually, one of the things that we know is that Lazarus, um, that Jesus knew, the brother of Mary and Martha, owned a house. And we know that this man who is poor who has absolutely nothing. So we know it is not the same guy. It's just a hypothetical name that's given. Okay? So while the rich man has, he's wearing all these beautiful robes, what is the poor man Lazarus wearing? He's wearing sores. He can't take care of himself because he has nothing. While the rich man has unlimited food, he can eat whatever he wants. It is the poor man, Lazarus, who sits underneath the rich man's table just begging for his scraps. And the thing about, you know, it's the end, it seems like a throwaway, right? It's like, is Jesus just toying me out here? He's like, and the dogs would lick the sores. And you're like, is Jesus just like, he's a vivid storyteller and he just likes, I don't know, licking puppies. Like for some of us, it's like a licking puppy. That's a wonderful thing. But in this place, it becomes grotesque. Why does Jesus include this? He includes this because dogs were unclean animals, right? In, 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 in first century Judaism, the point to be a good Jew was to be clean so you could worship at the temple. The point was to avoid things that were unclean, right? So as much as I was just up in the New Hampshire, Maine area this last week, and there's all the, the lobster. Lobster at that point was seen as an unclean animal. Similarly, dogs were unclean animals, So, you know, when you go home and greet your dog on Sunday afternoon, say, hello, you creature who are unclean before the eyes of God. And that will be, and they don't understand your language. So you can say whatever you want to a dog if you say it in the right voice. Like, hello, little unclean creature. Just do it. It'll make you feel empowered. But here's the point. The dog licking the sores. Sores made a man unclean. The dog licking the sores made an unclean. Lazarus is this embodiment of what the Pharisees would see as the lowest detestable human being in existence. So Jesus is setting this story up. And he, remember, remember, he's telling this in the presence of the teachers of the law so that they see a bigger story. Now, will you read along with me? Verses 22 to 24. 
The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, the one thing that the rich man and the poor man Lazarus has in common is that they both die. And that is something that I've found to be universally true throughout all my years here. No matter who you are, no matter what position of promise you have, one in one people die. It's an inevitability. Happy Sunday. Go live that up. We'll try to break this down a little bit. Jesus here then uses their death to talk about heaven and hell. And for us, and maybe some of us Christians, or maybe for somebody who's been in the process of deconstructing, considering things about our faith, just dealing with some of the, maybe the trauma that we've had in our lives caused by religious people, just even the concept of talking about hell can be revolting to some of us. But I will tell you that perhaps what is the most descriptive uh, text on hell is actually spoken right here in Luke 16 by Jesus. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I just want to be able to say that it's this destination aspect after both the rich man and Lazarus died that would have really bothered the Pharisees because they identify with the rich man. The rich man was the, was the religiously clean person who they were like, oh, I'm the rich man in this story. And they would have pitied and fell over Lazarus. But what does Jesus do? The great reversal, right? So in this story, when he's saying, hey, there's two destinations, Abraham's side, and we know Abraham is the, is the you know, he, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. He was a religious figure, probably one of the most revered religious figures across major religions, because Islam, Judaism, and Christianity acknowledges him. He was called by God a few thousand years ago to leave his pagan native life and to become God's great nation. And as a result, all the Jewish people revered Abraham. He's one of the most respected biblical figures that a Jewish person could find. And here you have Lazarus, the poor man, the detestable person, is by Abraham's side. And in Hades, in the nether regions, there is the rich man looking up, trying to see this. So in talking about this, and then you have the exchange, right, where the rich man says, please just give me, a, let Lazarus just give me a little taste of water to escape this torment. He talks about hell. So a few things about hell, because um, usually I use it most frequently and talk about it most frequently as a curse word because it's very convenient, right? Maybe that's your exchange with it. But when we talk about this idea, the Christian concept of, of hell, this is one of the things that I really want us to see because the first point is we can't ignore it, right? So many of us have this idea about hell and we're just like, well, let's just not think about it, let's not talk about it, let's ignore it. We can't ignore it because Jesus talks about it and that's why I get to talk about it today. You know, it, it's this thing. But juxtapose this is that even though we can't ignore it, friends, we, we, we should not overemphasize it. The Bible's a big, robust book, and there's probably about 20 descriptors in the whole thing where it talks about hell. And there's concepts about the torment. And again, we're going to unpack this just a little bit later here. But this is the thing is that um, as a pastor, as somebody that's been in church, I've seen 
hell used as a tool by religious people. Maybe in some ways that the Pharisees used their wealth as a tool to be able to keep the masses down. It's like we would scare the hell out of people to try to get them to understand the importance of the gospel and the salvation that Jesus offers, right? And I think the problem really starts is that we look at this and we think this story is all about hell. Don't be like the rich man, be like Lazarus, because that's how it ends up. But stick with me, is that I'm going to keep working through this, but it's not, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. So can we go to this um, next text, verses 25 to 31. But Abraham replied, son, talking to the rich man, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross over from there to us. And the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses. The prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This, people, is good, rich content. So let's look at this really quickly. So Abraham is in the midst of torment, in the midst of Hades. And it's at this point, finally, he figures out, like, oh, maybe I was a little too self-centered in my life. So he's just like, look, if you can't send Lazarus between the space to at least quench my thirst, please send him to my loved ones so that they cannot end up where I am, so that they can correct their ways. But here's the deal. Abraham says, it's like, look, They have the scriptures. That's what he means by Moses, who gave them the law and the prophets. He's like, look, they had the same tools at your disposal. They can use that. They don't need somebody to go. And he's like, no, 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 no. Seriously, send the guy. Because if a dead man walked in and said, don't end up like, you know, like the rich man, you know, like that will change everything. And I love at the end, Jesus has Abraham say this. He says, even if somebody rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. So what is Jesus doing right there, obviously? He's projecting to his experience. Because they will see the teachers of the law are at a festival in Jerusalem when Jesus is crucified. They see the dead body. And when Jesus raises from the dead, there are still narratives that abound that say, oh, that was just, that, that, that wasn't really Jesus, Right? Like, the body was just kidnapped. Like, he, or, or, or even later, he didn't really die. Like, there were all these narratives that poured out. And what Jesus is saying is like, look, they didn't lessen then. They didn't change their way then. What makes you think that they will change their way now? How fascinating is it that the, the compassion of the rich man emerges after he's dead? I will tell you, this is a good rule for all of us. 
if you are waiting until you're dead to be compassionate, you're, you're seeing the timeline wrong, right? What is the etymology of compassion? It's co-passion, right? It's the way that you and I bear one another's burdens and pains. And that's why it's in our ability to see other people as valuable that allows us to be better people. Yes, I would say better Christians, right? But if you look at the request of the rich man to send Lazarus to his family to communicate what happened, really what that is is it's faux compassion. It's not true compassion, friends. It is faux compassion because Faux compassion is when I do things for other people because in some way it benefits me. And I really believe that this is something that Jesus was kind of alluding to in the rich man trying to say, hey, go talk to my brothers. Why? Because he's like, look, if I can get that crew in here, then maybe there's a chance for me to escape the great chasm between heaven and hell, right? Like, maybe if I have numbers on my side, then we can have, like, a group vote or something. I don't know how that would work. But he's like, nope. We're not doing that. What is true compassion? True compassion is caring for those less than you when there's absolutely nothing to benefit. Now, thankfully, I know the women and men and even the kids that are part of our body and is one of the things that I love is I see true compassion offered all the time. Now, just because I see it doesn't mean that you sinners are doing it all the time, right? And to be honest, me on my worst days, Sometimes I lack great compassion. The, the, my compassion inhibitor, inhibitor always takes place behind the wheel of an automobile, right? Like that is where I lack the most. Because I'm like, look, this is my aspect. All of us have the ability to have more compassion. But here is understanding the fuller significance. Because this is what I want us to see about this text right here. It's not about heaven and hell. It's about something even more important. Why does Jesus critique the Pharisees and the teachers of the law so much? Because they specialize in bringing hell to earth. They specialize in bringing hell to earth. That is the challenge that Jesus is trying to solve with this story right here. We talk about the, the chasm created in heaven and hell. That is what the Pharisees were doing in the very world in which they lived. They had all the power, the influence, the ability to change the lives of the people for the better. And they used all of that for themselves and for their benefit and for their comfort. And that is the critique that Jesus has. Again, when he's talking about divorce, the problem is the teachers of the law are like, these, the, these wives that we have are so easily replaceable that we can swap them out with regularity and still retain our cleanness, our place, our, our compassion, right? It all sets itself up for them, for who they want to be. But I'll tell you, the big thing about all this, this is what I love, the big aspect about this story that we forget who are the two people in Jesus' story? The rich man and Lazarus. And it always was interesting because, again, usually you hear Lazarus and you're like, oh, rise from the dead guy. And sometimes I thought it was happenstance, but the more I thought, I'm like, is Jesus actually being strategic and using a name that we're like, wait, 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 is that another guy's name? Because of this, notice that 
The powerful in death have no name. It's the poor man Lazarus who does. What did Bill W. say about anonymity? He said it's sometimes it's a check on us to understand where we're at, right? It's for us to be able to say, for to keep us from going hog wild after things. The anonymity can be a tool when we're not in the pursuit of something greater, something more powerful, and we settle in. But here, it was interesting, is that the divorced woman had no name. But boy, in the afterlife, the poor man Lazarus has a name. And Jesus is showing them the reversal of the kingdom again. And he is saying those who are weak will be made strong. Those who are poor and powerless will have the access to things. Friends, names have importance and meaning. I do a lot of travel in Washington, D.C., and when I get in town, I like to walk. I just love to walk Washington, D.C., day, night. If I have, if I have an hour, I'm going to find my way to the Washington Mall and walk. So I've been in, in recent years in the steps of Lincoln Memorial any, more than anybody actually should. And then I also always veer to, when you're going to the reflecting pool, off to the left is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And my father fought in the Vietnam War, and he survived. And when we would visit there, we visited twice as a young person, and he would never even walk through it. So in some place, vicariously, I walk through it. And it's the most somber but beautiful place because all it is is black granite with names inscribed. And I love it. Even though it's a horrible reminder, the reminder that every person who perished, and as we consider this on this Memorial Day weekend, you think about all those who perished for this country, whether the war was right or just or not, they gave life and they have a name. And that name is significant. Think about your very life. It's like the most perhaps dramatic thing that ever happened in your life occurred months probably before you were born when a parent decided, oh, I'm going to name them Stephen. I'm going to give them a name. Because you take that with you, the totality of where you're at. The name here and the lack of anonymity for the impoverished, I think, is critically important. Critically important. Because what Jesus is doing here is redefining the kingdom. And what he is doing is he's confronting the teachers of the law for teaching, for treating people like nameless nobodies. We, the people of God, are not called to live lives without compassion. We are to treat everybody, treat everybody as if they have a name. Just going back real quick, because this is the interesting thing. I, I started off with the love of money. I talked about the divorce, but sandwiched between that, Jesus makes the proclamation in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. He said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear for than the least stroke of pen to drop out of the law. I love that he is saying, God's word resonates even beyond eternity. And he says, hey, before God's word will pass away, heaven and earth will pass away. And the point is, is that that will not happen, right? That will not occur. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that the resonance of God's word will come through the ages. And listen, friends, I've studied 
You know, my doctorate's in theology. I've spent hundreds of hours studying the scriptures. And the one thing that I've come down to is that message of God's word is not one that's dependent on frightening people into obedience, but releasing you and I to be able to live our best lives freely underneath the umbrella of the grace of Jesus. Is that he changes who we are. And if he really does it, it's not about preaching sins at people or feeling superior to them, but knowing their name and exhibiting compassion. So every week we ask the question, how do we live as the redeemed people of Jesus? How do we live as the redeemed people of Jesus? And I would offer you that what we've seen here in the story is that not exhibiting compassion is bringing hell to earth. So the inverse of that, if you and I are to live as the redeemed people of Jesus, we need to love unconditionally. To love unconditionally. And friends, I'm, I guess I'm halfway through life. I don't know if I'm middle-aged. Maybe I'm at. It depends when I die. Because if I die tomorrow, then I was really late-aged and I have no actual idea. But during this journey of life that I have been on, the one thing that I see is that if we, God's people, love unconditionally, it changes everything. It makes life more bearable. It's tough enough to live in a world that lacks compassion and grace, but when we, the people of God, live that way, it's detestable. See people the same way as the Savior sees them. See them as if they have a name. Shepherd those within your care. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 3, that the shepherd opens the gate, the sheep listen to, the, to his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them. Maybe you're in a time in your life where you need to be led, and you need good shepherds. I would hope that this is a, a family, a group, a community in which you can find that. But if that's not your calling right now, then that means your job, you are called to shepherd. You are called to be like Jesus and lead, and in doing so, you call them out by name. I praise the Lord Jesus that he sacrificed everything for you and I to call us by name. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.